Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. So we are continuing our sermon series, and we're calling this sermon series Table Read. So a table read is when players in a drama sit down at a table, and they read the entire drama of which they are a part from beginning to end. And what this does is it gives everybody the big picture of the story that they are in, and therefore it gives them confidence to play their part, however big or small, to play their part well. Well, I hope we believe the Bible is best understood as the true story of the world. It is a divine drama. And it lowers us and it elevates us at the same time. We've been talking about this. It lowers us because we are not the hero of God's story. Jesus is. But at the same time, it elevates us. Why? Because God miraculously and surprisingly gives you and gives me a vital part to play in this drama. And so for us to play our part well, we need to know the story we are in. And that's the burden behind this sermon series. In other words, what we need most is to have a table read with the true drama of the world, the Bible. And so what we're doing is we're just sitting down, we're getting to know the whole story of God from Genesis to Revelation. Most of the time, one book at a time. Last week, we explored the book of Judges. Which means this morning we are going to look at the book of Ruth. I want you to think of Ruth as a Marvel one-shot. If you know what that is. If you're familiar within this Marvel Cinematic Universe, there are movies. And they're long. And then there are these one-shots. And one-shots are shorter than the movies. They take place, though, within the same universe. And on the same timeline. But they give you a very different perspective, don't they? Well, that's the book of Ruth to Judges. The very first line of Ruth is, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. This is a one-shot episode that takes place in the wild west of Judges. If you were with us Last week, can I get an amen? So we are immediately wondering, if we're following along, if this is just going to be more of the same. God's people behaving badly. More failure. Well, I'm happy to report to you this morning that Ruth tells a different story. What is that story? Well, I want to summarize Ruth. Before we dive into it this morning. To do that, I want to use six basic elements of a good plot to any good movie or to any good book. And so the first element that I learned about is the introduction. So in the introduction, in the book of Ruth, right away, if your Bible's open, you can follow along. We meet a family of four. Elimelech, his wife Naomi, both Israelites, Malan and Killian. And these are Israelites living in Bethlehem. Now, most of you are thinking ahead when you hear Bethlehem of t- to Christmas and to Jesus. But don't forget to look backwards too, because how did the book of Judges end and where did it end? 
you remember that dumpster fire that concluded the book of Judges? Well, that dumpster fire was sparked where? In Bethlehem. So we should be immediately wondering, more of the same? More of the same? And that's the direction we get. And then there's what's called the inciting incident. The inciting incident. We have the introduction, and then we have the inciting incident. Something happens to knock everything off balance. Well, in these first five verses of this introduction, I read not one, but three incidents that knocks everything off balance. And the first is this, a famine. A famine. There's a famine in Bethlehem. Which in Hebrew, Bethlehem means house of bread. And so we're asking, is God judging the house of bread? Because of everything we just read about in the book of Judges. The second thing we see is an exodus. So Elimelech and his family leaves the promised land. This has been described as a reverse exodus. God sends a plague in the form of a famine. But this time the plague is on Israel, not Egypt. God's people cross the Jordan, but this time it is in the wrong direction. It is going back to Moab. If the promised land is supposed to be Eden, and Eden is supposed to be God's restored creation, then this family is where? East of Eden. And the third thing we see in this book, just in the first five verses, is profound emptiness. In verse 19 of chapter 1, Naomi tells her old friends that she feels empty. Why? Well, she was full. But when she tried to escape the famine with the family, it just traveled with her, frankly. The famine. And it expanded to her family. and expanded even to her faith. Everything drives up. Her husband dies. Her sons marry women in Moab. Ruth, hang on to that name. That's an important name. And Orpah. But after ten years, these sons die. Without kids. And couples didn't wait ten years to have kids in those days. So nothing is fertile. Everything is foul. Even Naomi's faith is dried up. By verse 21. Naomi renames herself bitter. Because she's bitter at God for being bitter towards her. And not just bitter, but frankly vulnerable. And the words, in the, it's sort of the world of the Old Testament. You have to understand that there were four people that were the most vulnerable in these days. They were most vulnerable to abuse and they were most vulnerable to neglect, which is abuse. Nicholas Wolterstorff calls them the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable are widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. And here we see that Naomi and her daughters-in-law check three out of those four boxes. That's the inciting incident. Pretty big one. First five verses. But the next plot point in any good story is what's called rising action. Rising action. What is going to happen before? What's going to happen to Naomi? What's going to happen to her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah? Well, the next few chapters tell us what happens and in three phases. We'll call phase one, return. Return. Naomi decides to return to the house of bread. Naomi decides to return to Israel, to Bethlehem. 
And the Hebrew word for return in this first chapter, interestingly, is the same exact word that is used for repentance. So you get the sense that Naomi is not just returning to a physical place, but is maybe even returning to a spiritual place of trust in the Lord. And as she returns, her widowed daughters-in-law follow along. But Naomi urges them to return to Moab. There's that word again in verse 8. Naomi, I think Naomi's argument is pretty solid, actually. She says, you have a much better chance of survival in Moab than you do where I'm going. If you've just read Judges, she has a solid argument, does she not? The prospect of a vulnerable Moabite widow in the wild west of Israel, not good. So Orpah stays behind, and we can't falter. But Ruth clings, it says in the text, to Naomi. She says, and I'm quoting, Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And so what is repentance for Naomi is in a way new birth or regeneration for Ruth. She now belongs to Yahweh. And that's phase one, return. I think phase two of the rising action we could call Redeemer. So by the end of chapter one, they arrive in Bethlehem. It's barley harvest. So Bethlehem is literally a house of bread again. And that is good news. That is good news especially for Naomi and for Ruth. Because if you were with us in Leviticus, remember that one? You know that God gave Israel gleaning laws. Gleaning laws for the vulnerable in their midst. That's Leviticus 19 if you want to take a look. Verse 9 and 10, God sees and God acts, more importantly, on behalf of the vulnerable. And so his people, who are meant to reflect the nature and character of God, are are supposed to do the same. And that's what God's law is for them. And so what they do is, when they're they're commanded to leave the edges of their harvest for others to glean, to take, and to eat from. And anything they drop, they're not supposed to pick it up. And so in chapter 2, Ruth the Moabite immigrant heads for the fields. Enter Boaz. Heard that name? Enter Boaz. He's described in three ways in this text. Number one, as a respectable guy, which is refreshing after judges. Amen? Uh, He's not perfect, but he is decent. And his reapers respect him in verse 4 of chapter 2. He seems to love the Lord, verse 4, again. He shows his love of the Lord by caring for the vulnerable in his midst. That's verses 8 through 16 in chapter 2. He seems to go above and even beyond the law of God so that by the end of the day, Ruth has 25 to 50 pounds of bread. Not just a faint gleaming. It's a lot of bread. So he's described as respectable. And then he's also described as a relative. This is verse 1 of chapter 2. He's called a relative of Elimelech. Remember that name? That's Naomi's husband who died. And this is significant because in Israel there was something called Leverite marriage. Which just means near relative marriage. When a widow has no child... And put your mind again in the ancient culture here. When a widow has no child to carry the family name and the property of the family forward, the nearest brother was called on 
to marry the widow. And this was like ancient life insurance. And he's described as such in verse 1. But he's also described as a redeemer in verse 20. Naomi learns who it was that helped Ruth out and explains, and I'm quoting the text, the man is one of our redeemers. This is significant because Naomi has no land. Elimelech sold it in the famine. Do you remember that? And left Israel, left Bethlehem to go to Moab. And so Naomi has nothing. She is homeless. And she has no land. And in those days, the way you got your land back was through a redeemer. Someone who could purchase it back for you. And that redeemer had to be, most often, a relative. Which takes us to phase three. Risk. Risk. Return. Redeemer. Now risk. This is phase three of the rising action. And Naomi, in this moment, I think, connects the dots. If Boaz marries Ruth, that solves everything. So Naomi creates a plan, but it's a risky plan. And it's hard, frankly, to tell if it's a righteous plan. The most charitable interpretation of Naomi's plan is that she tells Ruth to dress in marriage clothes, like a bride. And so in a kind of wholesome, sort of Sadie Hawkins reversal, she's encouraged to ask Bo to marry her. The most maybe uncharitable interpretation of her plan is that she tells Ruth to essentially seduce Boaz or be suggestive. Naomi might be thinking if they're intimate, then he must and is obligated to marry her. And that sells her problem. Which is it? In a way, I think the text is ambiguous on purpose. Because regardless of Naomi's intent, what unfolds is surprisingly godly. First, when Boaz asks who she is, there's no deception at all. She's, there's no deception at all. She says, I am Ruth. And then she says, will you marry me? <laughs> that's, what, that's what spread your wings over me meant in those days. And then she tells him exactly why. You are a redeemer. She just names it. And then he responds in a godly way. I think like Joseph, when Mary tells him that she's pregnant from God, Joseph could have shamed Mary in that culture. But the text says in the Gospels that he didn't. He was godly in that situation. And I feel the same with Boaz. He sees that she's acting unselfishly. And she sees that she is acting boldly in that context. Redeeming Naomi. This isn't some romance novel. This is risky, bold action for the sake of Naomi and the family. And he calls her action Hesed kindness, which we're going to talk about later. And all this is just flat out risky because this plan could have gone horribly wrong in so many directions. Remember, Ruth is a Moabite woman. And if you press rewind on the story that we've covered so far in the Bible, and you just stop at every mention of a Moabite woman, you will notice a biblical theme. So first, in Genesis, Lot's daughters 
One of them decides that she wants to sleep with her drunk father to get a child for her dead husband. And that child is named, anybody? Moab. At Baal Peor, an Israelite man commit spiritual and literal adultery with the women of Moab. As one commentator puts it, on the surface, Ruth looks like the stereotype in this plan. But in the end, what does Ruth do? She redeems the Moabite. She reverses it. Which takes us to the fourth element of a plot. And that is dilemma. And this happens in verse 12 of chapter 3. We learn that Boaz is just a redeemer, not the redeemer. Apparently there's a man who's a closer relative, which is a huge bummer. Right? We're all saying, dang it. But I like Boaz. Because it's this nameless guy who is closer in, in, as a relative. And so if this nameless guy plays the Redeemer, then Boaz is just out of the picture. And if we're reading with the ending in mind, which we should be, Obed isn't born, and therefore King David, spoiler alert, therefore King David isn't born. This dilemma is really the bulk of chapter 4 of Ruth, which is basically a window into Old Testament family court. So commentator Mary Evans makes the point that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament assumes, and chapter 4 shows this, against the cultural tide of its day, that the rights that the opinions and the actions of women matter. Well, in the end, this nameless relative does a cost-benefit in his mind, and he says, nope, sorry, too costly. Not enough in for me. Which takes us to the fifth element of a good story, which is climax. Boaz becomes the redeemer of Naomi's land, but that's not all. He also becomes the husband of Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth. But that's not all. He also becomes the father of Ruth's child. So verse 13 of chapter 4 says, The Lord gave her conception. This is, in other words, if you think about the ten years of no conception, a miraculous birth. It's depicted as such. A miraculous birth. Which should, I think, make us think of another miraculous birth. Generations and generations later in the same exact family. Which takes us to the final conclusion. The focus is on Naomi again. She was empty, now she's full again. She was dead, now she's alive again. She once was without a family. And now the story really ends with her nursing Obed in her lap, who, by the way, is King David's grandpa. And that's a rough summary of Ruth, okay? Uh, that's a one-shot episode called Ruth. But let me just ask this question. What does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with me? Before we answer that briefly, let's pray. Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts on this ancient story, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And so in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Well, in St. Louis, during my first year of seminary, I worked at a coffee shop called Caldi's Coffee. Caldi's Coffee. When I applied to the job, I thought I was signing up to be a barista. Someone who makes drinks. 
who tends bar. And after all, I already had experience as a barista. I worked part-time through my college years at a coffee shop back home. So when they hired me, I was excited to apply my trade behind the espresso machine. But after a week or so, my manager took me away from the espresso machine and he threw me and she threw me in front of the cash register, which is basically where I stayed the rest of my time there. And this wasn't because I was making bad drinks, at least that isn't what she said. The reason that she put me in front of the cash register is because, according to her, I was kind. I was kind. She said, all you seminary students who work with me are kind. She said, we need you at the register because you smile at customers and you don't, you know, get in fights with them. (laughs) Which apparently was a problem. Which is a low bar, actually, definition of kindness, if you ask me. But according to that definition, I was kind. Uh, these, these days, the word kindness is everywhere, isn't it? It's everywhere. It's on shirts, it's on yard signs, it's on bumper stickers, it's in our school's motto that my children go to. But what is kindness? Amen? What is kindness, after all? Is it just a smile and an absence of yelling? Sometimes I wonder if we've watered down our definition of kindness in our culture. According to my boss, I was kind because I didn't yell at customers. But is there more to kindness than that? Well, if you read Ruth and you pay attention to the word kindness, you will discover that there is more to kindness than you may realize. In Ruth, the word kindness comes from the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. Can you say that word to me? Because it's so important. Hesed. Hesed. This word frames Ruth from the beginning, verse 8 of, verse, of chapter 1, to the end, verse 10 of chapter 3. It also anchors the story right in the middle, chapter 2, verse 20. And so here's my question. What if we allow God to define kindness? In the book of Ruth, what would we find? In other words, what is said kindness? And I think the book of Ruth shows us it is at least three things. The first thing it is, is this. It's committed. said kindness is committed. What does Ruth say to Naomi after Naomi experiences the loss of everything in her life? She says, where you go, I will go. And more important than saying it, she actually doesn't. Boaz later describes this commitment of Ruth as Hesed kindness. Hesed kindness is not being nice. Hesed kindness is a determined commitment. Paul Miller in his book, The Loving Life, which is basically a meditation on this word, has said in the book of Ruth, defines has said as, and I'm quoting, one-way love, love without an exit strategy. When you love with has said love, you bind yourself to the object of your love, no matter what the response is. Has said is a stubborn love. Years ago, we were teaching one of my sons how to water speed. And we told him, sit low on your skis like a cannonball. And then when the boat takes off, 
Just hold on. Whatever you do, do not let go. Just do not let go of the rope, which is exactly what our son did. He did not let go. He did not let go of the rope. And as the boat dragged him through the water, he still would not let go of the rope. We realized at that very moment, we did not tell him to drop the rope if he fell. I'm hearing you again. This has happened to others. Well, friends, that is Hesed love. It doesn't let go. Feelings are important. We should pay attention to emotions. But Hesed kindness is committed and determined even when, especially when, we don't feel like it. That's Hesed kindness. The second thing that we find from Ruth is that true, true kindness is costly. Because true kindness is committed, it exacts a real cost in our life. Miller says Hesed combines commitment with sacrifice. That's what Hesed is. It's committed and it's costly. Which means kindness isn't just a chill disposition. I desire to smile and not yell at the customers because I, I don't like conflict. It's like self-protection. Don't give me credit for that. <laughs> I'll smile and not get in fights with people who are yelling at me. That's not kindness, according to Ruth. Kindness, according to Ruth, is committed and it's costly. It costs something. And we see this with Ruth. We also see with Boaz. But let's look at Ruth first. She gives up everything that is known and secure in Moab. Why? So that her mother-in-law would not sojourn alone. Ruth could have stayed behind in Moab to remarry and to regroup. But instead she, in the word is, clings to Naomi. And then out of faithfulness to Naomi, she proposes marriage to Boaz in a very, very risky way. Boaz looks at her in the shadows and says, this is some serious chesed. We could consider everything, according to our cultural standards, that she has done to this point as a sort of dead weight to her best life now. But her kindness was costly. Boaz shows costly kindness too. Time and time again in the book of Ruth, Boaz goes above and beyond what is expected. So he goes above and beyond the cultural expectations of the time, for sure. After reading Judges, we get the sense that men with power, which is who Boaz was, were expected to do whatever they wanted to. Even at, and especially at, the expense of the vulnerable. I shudder to think about this story of Ruth if we're sort of placed in the book of Judges. How it would go. So he goes above and beyond cultural expectations, but he even goes above and beyond what God required of his people. He doesn't just passively leave grain on the margins for this vulnerable woman in the midst of Bethlehem. But he actively invites her to his table. He doesn't just passively allow a near relative to buy her land back, leaving Ruth, therefore, unmarried, and Naomi without a family or a future there. He went beyond the law and he married Ruth so that she and her family were cared for. 
his kindness was costly as well. In other words, he saw God's command to care for the vulnerable as a floor, as a starting place, not a ceiling, and an invitation, an invitation that expanded his life, didn't it? not a prohibition that narrowed his life. Boaz didn't ask, what is the minimum that I must do to, to, to make God happy with me? Instead, the question that Steve Boaz was asking is, in freedom, what is loving to this vulnerable person? His kindness was costly. According to one Old Testament scholar, Chesed is that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to any advantage that it would bring them. True kindness, in other words, is costly. And that's why, actually, Paul Miller, in his book, translates the Hebrew word chesed as helpfulness. I love this. If you've been with us any time, you know that I talk a lot about this. Help. The word help, I think, takes us out of the world of um, kind of fleeting feelings and into squarely the world of costly action. After a long day at work, think about it. It's easy to say, I love my kids. But it's way more challenging to ask, what can I do to help my kids? In a busy season of life, it's easy to say, love thy neighbor. But it's way more challenging to ask, what can I do to help that neighbor right now? Like that, that neighbor right now. The help question is way more challenging. Why? Because it's way more costly. See, Ruth is not just some biblical romance novel. It's a searching challenge. It causes us to ask, would people in my life characterize me as helpful? And this takes us to our third point. True kindness is committed. Yes. It is costly, yes. But because of that, it must also be Christ-centered. And this is good news, that true kindness is Christ-centered, because we don't have the human capacity for true kindness. For this kind of chesed kindness. This kind of committed and costly kindness that we've been talking about is humanly possible. And that's why, impossible, which is why our hesed kindness must be rooted and even sourced in the hesed kindness of God. Remember, we cannot give away what we don't already have. And so we cannot give away hesed kindness unless we first receive hesed kindness from God. And God's hesed is on offer to us in Christ. Just think about Jesus. His kindness is committed, is it not? His kindness is costly, is it not? Jesus could have demanded anything from anybody as king of all, but how does he use his authority and power? He uses his authority and power, Lord of lords, to lay down his life for us all. His commitment to his bride, that's you, that's me, was costly. Let me say it this way. Jesus is not nice, he is kind. He is Hesed. Jesus is Hesed. He is Hesed. He is God's costly, committed action. 
Word made flesh. Ruth and Boaz is not the hero of this story. They are refreshingly godly, but they are not God. See, Ruth and Boaz are designed to direct our eyes to Jesus. So with Ruth, her costly committed kindness to Naomi opens the door to baby Obed, which opens the door to King David, who opens the door to King Jesus, which means that Jesus has said in the flesh, has Ruth flowing through his veins. Jesus is not embarrassed to have Ruth, the Moabite woman, in his family tree, because Ruth not only sets our eyes on Jesus, but it also is Jesus' global heartbeat. Boaz sets our eyes on Jesus. Verse 20 of chapter 20 has this ambiguity in it that I believe lies at the very heart of the book of Ruth. I'll just start in verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, that's Naomi, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she took her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and she said, this is Ruth now, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Now this is what Naomi says back. Verse 20. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness whose has said has not forsaken the living and the dead. So let me ask you a question. Whose has said is being talked about right there? May he be blessed, that's Boaz, by the Lord, that's Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Is the Hesed Boaz's? Is the Hesed God's? And the answer just very well might be both. That's That's how Hebrew works. Verse 20, I think, is designed to show us that the Hesed of God is in a way meant to be experienced through the tangible actions of others. And if that is true of Boaz, how much more true is it of Jesus who sees us in our vulnerability? Jesus who gives us bread himself. Jesus who redeems what was lost in our life and not just a field, but all of creation. Jesus who sets a table for us. Jesus who goes beyond and above. Jesus who ultimately marries us and gives us a future, eternal future, who sustains this marriage, this relationship with us by his costly and committed, and I will never leave you nor forsake you till the end of the age, love. Hesed. I've shared this before, but every time my wife and I leave her parents' house, they stand outside on the porch and they wait until we just drive away and we become dots on the horizon. And it feels way over the top and totally unnecessary. Every time. But let me just be honest, it feels really good to be on receiving end of that. And so when folks leave our house, we try to make a practice, my wife and I, of doing the same thing. And perfectly, of course, but we want to. Why? Because it feels so good. Like we've received it, and so we want to give it away. We give away what we've received. That's just the logic of Hesed. 
You give away what you see. You become a redeemed redeemer. You become a rescued rescuer. You become a, a chesed receiver to a chesed giver. And we can do this because we received it in Jesus. Hesed is costly. It is committed. But friends, ultimately it is Christ's to give. And he gives it to you. So let me just end this time with three questions. Number one, have you tasted Jesus' chesed kindness? His committed love. Or maybe this, what person in your life, perhaps like Ruth or Boaz, has embodied this love to you? How can you be that person in somebody else's life? Take a second to just think of one vulnerable person in your midst who could be on the receiving end of your chesed kindness this week, this season of your life. What would that costly kindness look like for you? How could you enter into this costly kindness as an invitation and not a burden? Could you trust God that by exacting this committed cost in your life, that your life is actually expanding and becoming more whole as opposed to narrowing and becoming less so? And then hope as a church. What if our reputation as a church was chesed kindness? What would that look like? Imagine folks in our life like Naomi, for instance, who burn out, who are burnt out on God, who are running away from God. Imagine them returning to experience costly committed kindness from this church. Like Naomi experienced from Ruth. From like normal people, like you and me. And in that experience of costly commitment, they began to warm up to the Hesed of God again. Who is that? Who is that person in your life? That you can cling to. When water's going through your nose. If the quartet of the vulnerable in the Old Testament were widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor, who are they today? And do they taste committed and costly kindness from Hope Church? Do they experience the chesed that we have experienced with our hands? Friends, we who have much in Jesus are invited and empowered. To do so. Lord. As your people, you called us and even given us a part to play in your story. And if we read Ruth as part of our story, then we understand right away part of what it means to be your people is to showcase your Hesed love to the nations into the world, into our neighbor, into our children, into our spouses, into our friends, into our colleagues, into everyone we encounter. And so, Lord, would we drink deeply of your chesed love this morning? 
in a moment would receive your hesed love at the table. And there find our rest. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.